Hi. Before today's interview, I wanted to ask a small favour, really small one, I promise. I got a message from one of my listeners over the weekend letting me know that they had nominated Climbing Consulting for the Listener's Choice Award at the British Podcast Awards 2018. This award is voted for by podcast listeners like you and goes to the podcast who get the most votes from their listeners before the 12th of May this year. As this listener was kind enough to vote for me and for Climbing Consulting, I decided the least I could do was have a go at this award and see where we can get Climbing Consulting to. And to do this, I need your help. If you've enjoyed any of these podcasts, please could I ask you to take a moment to vote for Climbing Consulting for the Listener's Choice Award at the British Podcast Awards 2018. It's really easy to do, and here's how you do it. Step one, go to your browser, pick your phone up right now or on your desktop if you're at work, and type bit.ly forward slash CIC vote, all in little letters, really important, that bit, and that's bit.ly forward slash CIC vote. That will take you to the Listener's Choice Award nomination form on the British Podcast Award website, and that takes you to step two. On that form where it says search for podcast, type Climbing Consulting, and select that as the podcast you want to vote for. At least, I hope you want to vote for Climbing Consulting. Step three, enter your name, enter your email, and hit vote. That's it. Thanks in advance to those of you who have listened to that and are off to vote straight away. Thanks so much to those of you who have already voted. I really appreciate it. It really means a lot to get your feedback. And thanks a lot for helping with this. Please do let me know if you voted for Climbing Consulting, if you've just enjoyed Climbing Consulting, anything and everything, drop me a message. It's nick at climbingconsulting.com. Hi. And welcome to Climbing Consulting with me, your host, Nick Sinnott. Today's episode is a first for the podcast. Today, you get to hear from not one, but two guests as I chat with Ollie Pennell and Sharon Rice Oxley, two of the co founders of Q5. Q5 are an award winning organizational design consultancy with over 200 people across their offices in London, New York, Sydney, and Hong Kong. Ollie, Sharon, and the team set out with the goal of building the firm that they'd want to work for, both from a client delivery perspective as well as a cultural one. In doing so, they've built a fantastic reputation for their unique culture and approach to diversity, and were recently named number 20 in the Times Top Small Companies to Work For 2018. Sharon and Ollie were great guests, and frankly made my job very easy as they took my questions and between the two of them, they ran with them to give some really great insights and thought-provoking advice. We cover loads in this interview, including how Ollie and Sharon decided to create Q5 and the challenges they've faced as they've grown the firm, their advice to others in the industry thinking of starting their own consulting firm, and their unique approach to culture and how they've managed to create the award-winning and diverse culture that Q5 has today. Sharon and Ollie were fantastic guests and I'm sure you'll get a lot from what they have to say. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Ollie Pennell and Sharon Rice-Oxley. So today is a first for the podcast. We actually got two guests. This is my first tandem interview. Um, so Sharon, Ollie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very Thank much you. for having us. I wanted to kick off with the really the start of the Q5 journey. I'm always interested in firms with co-founders and the story behind how all the co-founders met, how they got going, what 
who who spoke to who, who who decided there'd be four, not five, not three. And I just wanted to find out really how how you started Q five. It's a it's a go, it's, Ollie. You I'll go. go for it. I'll go. You go first. <laughs> I'm being permitted to speak. Um, so I think I think it's a really it's a really good question. And actually, this question is is relevant to any small business, um, whether it's a consulting firm or whether it's a biscuit manufacturer. We're a human capital business. You know, whether you're a law firm or accounting firm, when you're experienced, and certainly Sharon and I had been working for probably about 13, 14 years yep. at a time where we thought it would be great to go and take what we do for a living out to market in a new mm. brand, um, you get an itch, don't you? We, yeah. we, we got yep. to our, our mid-30s, and I think there are a couple of things going on. Firstly, the firms that we had been working in up to that point didn't major in organisation design and development. It was always a peripheral thing for them, and uh, yet it was the work we loved, uh, the work we were most mm-hmm. passionate about. Mm-hmm. And we were thinking, well, actually, maybe if we were to create a firm that focused in the organization space, that we could have great fun creating a brand from scratch and taking it to market and doing the work we're most passionate about. And and I certainly, from Sharon and my perspective, we, we'd known each other a long time. We hadn't actually worked together, no, no. but we'd known each other a long time. I, I think we had a respect. I certainly yeah, respected yeah, you. I hope absolutely. God me. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and so we wouldn't had, be here if I didn't. <laughs> so we had long conversations over bottles of wine, yes. and um, and uh, uh, you know it took about a year of planning, yes. a year of yes. of, of, of talking yeah. through what we wanted. And, to and do. I think when you're when you begin to think about setting up a business, the only right time to do it is when you are personally ready to to found mm. the business. Um, you know, we set up Q five in two thousand and nine, which was in the last recession. And genuinely, a number of people who we started to talk to about it, our wives and husbands, our you know, advisors said, why are you doing it now? And for me, it was a really obvious answer. It was like, because I'm ready. I'm ready now personally, because the commitment that you need to give to founding and establishing a business is is all consuming. And so you just have to kind of look, you know, deep, deep inside. You have to look at the people that you've chosen to do it with and say, we're ready, we're ready to go. And actually, whatever else is going on around you doesn't really matter at that stage. You've got to have that belief that you've got the experience, the impact and the the knowledge to do what you need to do. Mm. No, I agree. And, and I want to just come back to the point you two knew it. You said you'd known each other a long time. My understanding is you were both at Accenture for a sort of period of time. Was it that you had become friends there? And then I know you both went off and did other things that would be interesting to explore. But how did you two decide that you would come together to have these conversations about a business? So so where, it, it, you know, it's kind of like unraveling a ball of string. How do you actually track back to, to the, you know, the origination of the conversation? And I, and I, you know, I think in reality, it was probably Ollie that actually picked up the phone. Um, I was freelancing at the time. I had three small mm. children. Um, I had started to play with some of my own business ideas. Um, Ollie was in a smaller consultancy at the time, you know, you know, doing very well and growing that business. But you know, clearly he had an itch, a personal itch as well. And and personal he itch. personal <laughs> itch. You can take that. <laughs> yeah, I had a personal itch. <laughs> and he picked up the phone and said, um, can we have a can we have a glass of wine? I've got yeah. an I've got an idea I want to talk to you about, and then it grew from there. So I'll yeah. let you then you know. So what made you pick up the phone? Um, so what made me pick up the phone to you at the time was um, it's it's like building a pop band. You know, it's like building a band, a manufactured band. Um, Sharon is, uh, well, you can see here, a, a very charismatic 
high energy uh, <laughs> a driver. And what we did, so your, your first question was, how did you decide whether to have four or five or two people? Right at the very beginning, we wanted to go into organization design and development. And we wanted to be able to be a ready-made team. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we wanted a team where we had someone that was very arithmetical, we wanted someone that knew finance functions. We wanted someone that knew HR functions. And we need so so we were able to work as a ready-made team on a particular client. So we had different personality types. There were three, three blokes, yep. uh, two women. So it was always very diverse, actually. And our, our diversity to this day, we have a lot of people in the business now. And 55% of our firm is made up by, mm. by women. So it's always been quite a diverse business. And the different personality types to begin with, we had drivers, we had expressives, we had, so we, so we went for five and uh, it was the right number. Yes. But, I mean, Sharon is is uh, a force of nature <laughs> and I saw someone that I knew would be able to go out, knew no fear, would be, had a good network and had worked both within a client organisation and as a consultant. So that was really the melange that we went and, through. And, and so why did I sort of take the call? I'd been freelancing for for a couple of years, having left an, in, an in-house role. And I was actually a bit lonely and a bit bored actually working on my own. I'm, I, that's not my kind of modus mm. operandi. I'm much better in a team. And having known Ollie from Accenture, so having, you know, at that point known him for 10 years, I knew that it would be a lot of fun um, and that, you know, we, we, would, uh, we would go places. I want to come back, actually, Ollie, to your point around the manufactured pop band approach. I, I, I like the metaphor. Do you remember what specific questions you asked yourself or what business model or business plan you were trying to populate to get to those answers? How did you, how did you decide you needed one HR person, one finance person, one person who's good with maths, one person who's good with people, let's say? Uh, so it was a really simple thing. If you're going to create a team-led and team-run business, you need people with different attributes. So we didn't want to go for a whole group of homogenous people. We wanted people that brought different skill sets. And we've always had a philosophy right from the first day that you need to soar with your strengths. Now, Mm. I know from our Mm. experience of having worked in some of the bigger firms before, there was always a sense that in order to be promoted from one level to the next, you had to demonstrate you could do volumetric modeling and then you needed to be able to build, Mm. you know, databases and things and if you couldn't get that tick in the box we wouldn't promote you any further whereas you've got people with myriad skill sets and attributes and actually if you're an extraordinarily brilliant facilitator why force them to become a a demon excel modeler if they're brilliant at facilitating Mm. Uh, so right from the outset we wanted to demonstrate that you could have a team with different attributes and different skill sets and they were all, all of all equal value um, so, mm. so that's what we went to from the competency point of view. And was this the two of you? You mentioned we. So you'd had your original drink. We, and then... So we went. We we talked to quite a few people. In fact, though, you know, there are certainly one one of the people that you've interviewed on another <laughs> podcast is another person that we spoke to. Um, and uh, so this this isn't something that we just did overnight. This was a. Mm. Uh, this did genuinely take about twelve months mm. worth of working out who we wanted to go into business with. And the other thing, it's worth it's worth saying that the the other thing that was driving us, uh, and and in terms of uh, attracting the the right type of personality into the business, was the fact that when you do what we do for a living, by setting up your own business and learning about what it takes to brand mm. it, mm. and learning about what it takes to manage a P and L and discovering what a debtor day is, and needing to balance the books. These are things that we advise our clients on on a day-to-day basis. If you're in a big four firm, 
you you will often be asked those questions by your clients, yet you've never lived it viscerally. So, you know, going back to the very beginning, we were at a point where we were looking for people who wanted to experience that from scratch. So, you know, yeah, it's and, really and I, key. I think another there comes a point as well where you have to say this now feels right. So there's a there's a big bit of gut. Got yeah. instinct in that as well. So you can do all the planning and you can spend uh, you know, a lot of time saying, you know, what's the scenario and what will happen if. But I think eventually, you know, we got to a stage where we had five people around the table and we said, Are we are we gonna do this? Are we gonna resign from our jobs? Because, you know, we were all working apart from Carla and we're gonna now do this. You know, we're gonna stop the planning and we're gonna kind of get into action. So so there's a bit, there's lots of data and lots of kind of, you know, conversation, but then there's a gut moment that says, it feels right. And I won't labour it too much, but the, your approach to finding your co-founders, I think is a really interesting one. And I'm just thinking for others who, like you, maybe sort of when you started, were mid-30s, want to do something similar. Do you remember why it was that you decided that, so Chris and Daryl, forgive me. Carla currently I believe there's Carla. Only, So Carla, Carla was the, the, um, the, the fifth, fifth person, yeah. The fifth beetle. The fifth beetle. She, she, <laughs> fifth so it's interesting. And so these, are, these, these questions are really relevant, actually, because Carla, Carla lasted for about a year or so. 14 months. 14, yeah, 14 months. months. And she was terrific and, and brilliant and mm. actually works with us now 10 years on as an associate of the business. But again, at the time, it was in, I can't stress enough how brutal it was. Mm. This, we mm. were talking about the beginning of 2009. As Sharon said, the expression used, the pit of the recession, mm. it was absolutely the pit of the recession. And I think at the time, it was such hard work that we got to our first year. I think we, as a business, we built about £20,000 yeah. in the first six months. Yeah. So it was a, a business where it was all or nothing yeah. for certainly four of us. Mm. And the fifth person happened to be married to a fantastic chap who worked in a bank. And it was kind of, this is, this is, this is all consuming. This is absolutely mm. all consuming. I've got three kids to look after. I'm not sure I can give it what you are giving, Sharon, and what you're giving, Chris. So that that was, you know, finding the right people. It was who was hungry enough to want to do it, who was uh, slightly mad yeah. enough to want to yeah. do it, yeah. Um, yeah. who uh, shared that passion for creating a brand from scratch, and who was prepared to risk everything to do it. And and I again, it's really and I important. would add, I would want to add one one other really important characteristic: um, who was loyal. Yeah. loyalty and and you know obviously you 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 learn loyal you know you learn how loyal people are over time but i think we knew that was a really strong value in all of the the five of us because we had to be committed to this and it was a big thing for carla at the at 14 months to say i'm not going to do this anymore but she was loyal to q5 and to us and didn't kind of want to mess anybody around and so she she made a really hard decision and i remember it being a hard decision yes yeah, so it was a massive decision yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's it, good to hear that it's worked out very well for all of you and she's you know still working with you now i'm always interested in the ones that got away or the ones that you you ummed an ad around you know someone who might have been your sixth beetle but you ultimately decided no do you remember any of the questions that either you asked yourselves that led to that was there anyone firstly i guess and if so do you remember any of the questions that led you to say no or led you to decide it wasn't quite right but it was always it was actually right it's a really question. It's a good question. It's a really I think it's a, it's a really good question. I, there's a sort of mutuality mm, to it in yeah. the sense that the when we were talking to people, the people that weren't founders of Q5 and and many of them have gone on to amazing things. Mm. It was whether they were prepared to take the degree of risk that you know if you leave a well-paid job and we were mm. all 
you know, we were all mm. pretty experienced. None of us took severance packages. We all walked away from mm. pretty decent jobs to do this. It was a hell of a punt. And I certainly speaking about two or three of the other people that we, we spoke to at the time, it was, this is almost too much to comprehend. I think we're better off doing this option here because it de-risks mm. it. It's already set up, for instance, and I can go and set up a new industry sector, for instance, or this thing here, they've been going for five years already. I think we can probably go. So it was, it was a sort of like, it was a mutual and a, a very good, upbeat, mm. uplifting experience mm. going through that. But the people mm. who ended up within the business, that's not, it actually, I've got to say, one of the other difficulties, I think, when you set up a business is, is going into business with mates, with friends. Yes. And I mean, Sharon and I have known each other since 1995, but we were professional acquaintances. And actually, if it had all gone pear-shaped mm. and we couldn't stand the sight of each other after the first year, it wouldn't have been the end of the world. It wouldn't have reached into the world. You know, it, mm. wouldn't, it wouldn't have destroyed mm. our families. But there is one of the five. I mean, Daryl, who you've mentioned already, I, I've known him since I was 18. So that, that was a hell of a big gamble to go into, mm. into business with a very, very good friend that you've known almost since childhood. It's not something that you would ordinarily recommend other people to do, but it has worked out. Yes, and so, so I imagine the question is, and how have you made it work? Yeah, don't, don't, ask, don't ask that question. Ask well, that question. well, I'd actually be interested in the one just before that of how did you make yourself comfortable with that, Ollie? Because I, that is another tangent, like you say, some people you meet professionally, some people you meet personally, and sometimes when you're chatting with friends, you think, you know, we've got a great business idea, let's start something. The risk is, like you say, if it goes pear-shaped, you might not see each other again. What conversations did you have either with yourself or with Daryl to get yourself in a place where you were comfortable to actually bring him in? Yeah, I, I just, it's, it's actually, it's a conversation we were having a few minutes ago. So as a member of the team, Daryl is someone with a, a huge mathematical brain, almost an algorithmic brain, which Sharon and I don't, <laughs> we're not able to replicate that. So, so, so we have different skill sets. And, and there's actually, you, you get amazing common sense. When you sit down and you're talking about different options, we're very creative and very driven. And sometimes you need to be able to sit down with someone that is a sounding board. And actually, he's the most brilliant sounding board and keeps, keeps people sane and sometimes can have that clarity of thought. And I think at the time, we, were, we, were, we thought that skill set, that capability was so important to our business to keep us grounded and keep us logical, actually, that it was worth taking the risk but it could have gone, I mean, it could did, have gone pear-shaped. Did pear you shaped. and Daryl actually have that conversation? We talked about it. You did? Yeah, we did. We talked about it at the yeah, time. Yeah. And, uh, the, you know, it's a, you know, if you've known someone for mm. 20 or well, more than that, you know, if you've known, mm. we knew each other in mm. 1990. Mm. It's a mm. long, long, long mm. time that mm. the risk would be that mm. you, you, you might end up hating mm. each other. Mm. And it happens. I mean, it does happen. Yeah. And I guess for me, you know, I saw a strength of relationship. Again, for me, the, that, that principle and value of loyalty, that, that, was, that was attractive, actually. That made me think that, OK, they've, they've taken serious consideration of this. But I think that was then our role as, as the, other, the other Beatles to kind of call it out if it had ever been an issue. And it hasn't been. And we've been very lucky. And, we, you know, you have your ups and downs over 10 years. But, you know, and we, we'll call stuff out and we do. Mm. And we, you mentioned the point around your when you decided to found the business. And 
it seems like you've taken a, you took a very structured approach to finding the other Beatles. You knew, you know, to to butcher a metaphor, you knew the type of music you wanted to play. You know, you knew the fans you wanted. You must have taken a look at the market at the time. I know you, um, Sharon, you mentioned you had that itch, but how did you decide that 2009, in the middle of the recession, was the right time to scratch it? And what did you put in place from the beginning to set the business up for success? So, so I think, I mean, you know, for me, it comes back to to the point I made earlier, which is, I don't. The only right time to set up a business is when you are personally ready. If you have got the energy, the energy, the commitment, and you think you've got the right people around you. So, so that's why I, I think two thousand and nine was was right. I think also in our business, you know, consulting is not a fair weather business. You know, actually true relationships are forged in consulting in times of hardship. Um, and therefore, for me, it didn't matter whether it was a recession or not. These were people that I we'd had long relationships with already. Um, they then became part of the Q5 um, family and, and organization as our clients. And for me, it was kind of the, the, the conversation continues. And, and as we were saying earlier, kind of in a recession, the only way is up, right? So, you know, yeah. <laughs> we've got to hope that we're going to turn, we're gonna turn it, yeah. the corner. But what we also did was we set it up in a really cost-effective way. We were absolutely tight. We were. We were. We, were absolutely <laughs> we, so we did not pay ourselves for the first Well, we couldn't because we didn't have any money. So, um, so. <laughs> you know, my, my clothing bill definitely dropped off. No new handbag. I mean, you know, seriously. And, and and I think I certainly went back to my husband and family and said, right, we're going to take a, a few bit of cost cutting at home yeah. here. So, you know, we, we came into it with a very prudent mindset and, and we've tried, we haven't lost that over the years and, and, and it's been, that's been a really strong guiding force for us. That, Personal life aspects, obviously, are yeah, equally important to the business side when you are starting your own firm. What sort of conversations were you having with your family or were you thinking to yourselves to to put that side of it into perspective? Because, and I, I've spoken with other guests about this who've, who've done a range of different approaches to starting their consulting businesses, but a reoccurring theme is largely they have kids, they have mortgages, they've, they've got responsibilities and you're stepping off into the unknown, no revenue, no salary. How did you decide that was right? And do you remember any conversations you had with your partners or with each, your life partners there or with each other as business partners on making yourselves comfortable to make that leap? Yeah, I, th- I think we had, um, so I think, it, you know, the partners within the business, I think we did look at, look each other in the eyes and, you know, as part of that planning process to say, how long can you go without taking a salary? I, re- I remember those conversations. Mm. And, and I think we probably, if my memory serves me rightly, probably said, well, we can go a year. We, yeah. we can go a year, you know, because then we, we've given it a good run. You know, that would be worst case, you know, if we had to do that. And, and we were already doing lots of contingency planning around that so that we wouldn't be in that position. For, for me personally, you know, I'll, I'll speak personally here with, for, with my husband, uh, Mark. You know, we've always been in a complete partnership. We've got three children. He works, I work, and we've always made it work. And sometimes one of us has dialed up work and the other has dialed down. And this was just a moment in time after three kids where it was my turn to dial up. Um, and so, you know, we just just have the conversation. I think it's a really, it's a re- again, another great question. <laughs> it's a really good question. And I think it's a question that anyone that's thinking about setting up their own business, whether it's a consulting business or any any type of business, needs to be able to uh, have long conversations with their partners about, you know, the, the what ifs. What if it doesn't mm. work out? What mm. if we earn nothing? And 
certainly in my case, I've got a very supportive wife who, you know, I've known for a very long time, longer than you, Sharon. <laughs> um, and she she knows how how I'm wired, and she knows the kind of things that I want to do for our family and what I want, need to do professionally mm. for the type of person that that I am. And she was incredibly supportive of it, uh, even if she, I mean, I don't know, now we've been very successful and I think she's really glad we've been successful. She's <laughs> very you know, delighted that we've enjoyed what's been a good sort of decade. Um, however, I don't think she would have stopped me uh, because no. she, yeah. she, wanted, she wanted us to, you know, to, to do the best we could with the with the skill sets that we had, mm. she was very supportive. Mm. And I, it's just two of the original five talking to you at the moment, but that would have been the same for for all the other spouses too. That was obviously the start. You mentioned Ollie that you made twenty thousand in those first six months, so you'd set off. You knew you had a year. What was that time like, and how did you get yourselves through it? Well, I mean, you know, the, the, funny enough, if you if you want more odd anecdotes, um, I actually remember in some of those early months there was a particular sandwich shop in Strutton Grounds <laughs> that we would go to because you could get an egg mayonnaise no, sandwich. For I used to bring 20. my lunch in. You brought your lunch I in. To bring so, my so, lunch the, in. so, so we were, we were, we really were uh, living the most prudent of, of of lives at the time, and I, that made us determined to succeed. It made us have that mm. spirit of we cannot afford to fail on mm. this mm. because we've got we've got five families that were mm. dependent on us succeeding, and so that motivated us. It gave us a drive. I don't think you know. Looking back, although we did only make twenty thousand, you know that's not that that's not some sort of funny sort of uh, joke. Really, it really was that sobering. We did believe in ourselves, mm. not, not in an arrogant way, but we we had successful consulting experiences behind us so we knew that between us we had the right capabilities and the right skill sets and we knew that if we found the right clients the, you know a client that we could actually do some proper work with that we would have some stickability some you know stickiness yeah and don't forget you know we were in our mid-30s at, at that point you know we've got kind of quite lot we'd already had long careers both at Accenture and then you know Ollie and, and Chris and Daryl and uh, at other firms I'd been in-house we had a very wide network of people mm. who who, although some of them thought we were slightly mad to be doing it in a recession, really backed us. I mean, I, I can remember, you know, now a good friend of mine from Accenture who works at a, a, a major bank. She was so excited when she was able to call me in the first six months and say, I think I've got a bit of work for you. We had, we really had people rooting for us because, you know, that we we built those relationships over many, many years. I mean, consulting as I think Ollie's already said, it, it's about the people and it's about the relationships you build. And if anybody ever forgets that, then their business, you know, you, you won't be successful. Yes. So is it, there is a, it's a key point you've just made there. There is, an, you know, for anyone who is listening to this, that's thinking, right, I'd like to set up a business. There, there is definitely a period of time where you can arrive the crest of a wave of goodwill. So the yes. people that you know, you've just mentioned people, it's absolutely the case. If you if you set up your own thing, most of your friends, acquaintances and connections will think, I really want to look yes. out for Sharon or yes. I really want to look out for Chris uh, and, you know, hopefully me. You know, so you could, you could guarantee that you get cups of coffee with people. They would be prepared to see you and they were rooting for you. But you cannot take advantage of that goodwill. No. So if there was a little 
glimmer of light or a potential mm. project we could work on, we had to almost over-deliver yes, it to, it. to you know, pay back that leap of faith they've taken in you. Because we were an untried, untested, mm. unknown brand. So again, anyone that's wanting to set up a business, there will be goodwill around mm. it. Your friends, your family, people will be batting for you, but you have to deliver. Yes. How did you, because I think, Ollie, that that's a really key point and a really interesting one about that wave of goodwill. Like you say, you've got to deliver. I guess first you've got to sell something to deliver. In those early days, how were you you pitching Q5? So, so, so I mean, we were really clear that we had to focus. I mean, we're, we're, we're management consultants. We fix problems for clients. Yeah, that is what we do. It's what we love. All of us do, love doing. Anybody that joins, that's what they love doing. But when we started, we were really clear that we needed to, to be distinctive in the marketplace. And that was why we chose mm. organization design. So it might be org design or op model, whatever you want to call it. But it was about the right size and shape of organizations for people to deliver their strategy because we felt that was a gap in the marketplace. And we didn't do reams of, of market research. That was based on our experience. We'd been in big consulting, we'd been in small consulting. And we knew that that would appeal to CEOs, to HR directors, to the C-suite. And so we went, that's what, that when we went out and talked about Q5, that's what we went to talk about. Now, of course, lots of other things come up in the course of coffees and conversations. And we wanted to fix problems that clients had. But when we went out and talked about Q5, we just kept talking about org design. Uh, and we kept talking about becoming the best org design consultancy in the UK and now the world. <laughs> <laughs> I want to cut, so you mentioned the, the global point, and I do want to come on to that because as a part of your growth, it feels quite unique in terms of how you've grown and how you've gone global so so quickly. You've mentioned around the, you know, that wave of sort of goodwill you get. What, if any, beliefs did you have about running your own firm that you thought earlier in your career, you know, maybe during your days at Accenture, that after starting Q5 and now having run it for coming up to 10 years was completely different to what you'd expected? I think things might, for me, have just been reinforced rather than expectations. I, I think met. so. I think it's a, it's a fascinating... It's a, running a consulting business is it's a really fascinating experience and it's a very easy thing to kick off because yes. it's an unregulated industry. And there is very capital low, investment yeah, capital is investment low. is low. There are quite low barriers to entry. Mm. And, you know, we have seen over the course of the last 10 years, lots of people have a go at it. And actually, the, the UK is a, is a very entrepreneurial mm. market. Uh, if you look at some of the other geographies that we work in, you know, we've, we've got an office in North America, in New York. It is, in, in our experience, slightly less on, entrepreneurial over there. They, they still like big brands and you know these are corporations that are used to working with prestigious brands because you know they, they feel they're going to get a quality kite mark that they might not get from smaller firms whereas in the UK people like backing the mm. David versus Goliath thing is is a key sort of almost business mm. tenets really it's kind of let's back mm. the little guy let's you know mm. let's see what we can do with these with these people I, I think we always thought that would be the case yeah. in the UK. Yeah. And it's been demonstrated, I think, to us that there's been goodwill. The people in this country, in the UK, like backing a small, mm. you know, I'm not describing us as courageous, but people who set up businesses that have taken a punt. Let's let's give them mm. a give them some business and see how they do. Now, the people that have not made it 
certainly over the last 10 years or so that we've been in business, they, they might not have got the ecosystem of their business mm-hmm. quite right. And, the, you know, we've been joking and actually anyone that's listened to this that's heard us talking about, we've never used the Beatles analogy before ever. <laughs> and, and actually, I don't want people to suddenly think, you know, we're talking about no. the world's most successful band <laughs> of all time. We, we would love to be as amazing as the Beatles were. It isn't around the cult of the, of the founders. And it's, uh, and it's mm. really important that when you build a brand, a consulting brand, you recognise that it is purely a human capital business. So, you know, it is unregulated, it's easy to get into, it's quite easy for four or five people to get together and say, right, let's put a, mm. a, a sign above our door, mm. let's go to market and have some fun and see what we can do. But you cannot believe in your own hype. Yeah. You have to believe in the power of a team. We, from day one, ban the word I, ban the word me. We have always reinforced it's about we, and it's about our clients, and it's about our projects, our team. and our mm. team. And we use we, and actually, even to this day, if any of us that were here right from day one ever inadvertently go and talk about my or I or me, we call, we, each, we other call each other out on it. And um, people that have joined us over the years have, have had to sort of, again, get their heads around the fact that we talk about, so we work with probably about 90 clients a year across all the different territories that we're in. Uh, and of course, I mean, I've probably exposed to about 10 of those clients per year. So there are another 70 mm. that I personally, as a co-founder of the business, have never had mm. any dealings with whatsoever. But they, as far as I'm concerned, they were our clients. And when we talk about resourcing those projects and who goes where, we talk about our mm. projects. Not mm. It's not Sharon's clients yes. and Sharon's no, team. We talk about our team. And that's a really, that for us as definitely propelled our our growth and the sense of team spirit Mm -hmm. and I think those firms that have struggled a little bit to uh, or those that haven't survived or those that have struggled to scale have probably been too focused on you eat what you kill this is my project this is my team we've never done that we don't have I mean most most uh, most professional services businesses have some clever algorithm that works out, you know, what the partner points out are worth and what each point is, you know, at Mm. the end of each year, how the partner drawings work. We don't do that. We have a process Mm. that we call, I mean, it sounds terrifying, but we have a process. And it is. And it is. (laughs) We have a process called rough justice. And we talk about, and it is basically, you know, we we are an equal team, but someone at the end of the year will, will, will have probably had an amazing year out of the partner crew, and that person ought to have a nod. You know, there should be a nod towards that person or those people. Um, and So and how does that rough justice concept work? I, I think I get the, the premise, but if you were in one of those sessions, what, what does a rough justice session look like at Q5? So it's a very honest... It's like Gladiator. It's gladiator. <laughs> <laughs> From Beatles to Gladiator. It's, yeah. it, it's probably the only time of... of or it is the only time in the year when we talk about I... Yeah. Because it, we we come to that table with a a personal view, and we seek feedback from each other on what we have done, what we've personally done, what what you know. And I, Ollie will sit there and say, Sharon, I saw you do X, Y, and Z, and I thought that was brilliant, or I saw you do A, B, and C, and that wasn't so good. So that's that's when we really focus in on the individuals, and it is it does feel uncomfortable because we are we set. Team targets, we, throughout the rest of the time through the year, the, the business cycle, it's always about the, the team effort. And it's also a very honest conversation. It's an honest and authentic conversation 
and we've we have managed that for the last ten years. We haven't had to take it anywhere else, and and you know who you know yeah. So the the other thing I was going to say about the the the, the principle of, of of sort of sharing the profit, you know, it's obviously shared amongst the partner group, but everyone in the firm is 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 put through a very similar process. So everyone in the business, from the most recent joiner that might be a PA, for instance, or someone that might have joined as a partner of the firm, is subjected to that same set of principles, Scrutiny, which is yeah, you know yeah. it's. Are you winning business in a team-orientated way? Are you playing to win? I, if you're going to a new client, are you making sure that you populate that 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 team or that particular you know that particular issue that you're addressing? Are you bringing the right people within our firm into it so that you are setting the client up for success? You're setting Q5 up for success. The client gets a value proposition, you know, a, a fantastic solution, and that we get rewarded and recognised for it, and then we can reward mm. our team in the right way. But it, it is a very—I mean, we've talked about it with with other firms, lots of firms. You know, you you might be surprised that, that lots of small firms talk to one another, and you know, we, mm. there are so many different models. And ours is—I don't know any other firm. I mean, lots of other firms look at our model and think it's mad, but it works for us. Mm. It absolutely it works for Q five. Mm. It has done up to now. It might change. Yes, Who knows? but I think that's another tenant for Q five. We we won't we won't just keep doing the same thing because that's what we've always done. You know, we are you know we are relentlessly curious about you know what's the new thing what's the next thing and we you know we, we will change as as we require as well so you know I, i'm confident that, that that's working for us at the moment if i was a small firm or uh, you know some of my listeners will be people setting up small firms or wanting to and they wanted to have a similar style rough justice session to you what are the key things that you would tell them to put in place to make sure it gives you the productive conversation and output it sounds like you achieve and doesn't just descend into a slagging contest uh, and a and an outright argument yeah i mean i think that comes down to the relationships that you have i mean that it isn't something that happens in the meeting the meeting is successful because of how we work together in the business so we are honest with each other when we need to be we give each other space when we need to and we know we 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 share similar values. Mm. You know, the partners, all of the partners in the business, not even now the founders, the, the people that now have joined the partner group, they share a set of values. Um, and those aren't just our company values that I'm talking about. Those are I believe in the team, I believe in loyalty, I believe in being real and true, and I'm not greedy. Mm. I, I want to make sure that I can do what's right for me and my family, but I need to do what's right for Q5. So I will sometimes make decisions that might not be right for me personally, but they're right for the business. And those foundations have to be laid throughout uh, whenever anybody new comes in, you know, you, you work with them. For us, the original founders, it, it's how we've worked together right from the beginning. So, you know, you you there's a little bit of a leap of faith. If you're going to try it, you know, you're going to have to give it a go and sort of go with it. But you've got to look inside and say, am I willing to kind of go with this and, and get get what I'm due? So I think that's that's a really useful guide for people. You mentioned there, Sean, around some of the cultural elements of Q5. And culture is obviously something that you put a lot of importance on. I actually asked Adrian, who kindly introduced me to, to Ollie and yourself, what he would ask you. And, and culture was top of his list. 
And obviously that's been recognized with this year, you, you won top 20 Sunday Times top small companies to work for, which is fantastic. I'll actually use Adrian's question because I'm sure he'd be interested to know. And how would you describe the culture at Q5? And, and what is it that for you makes it unique? Gosh, that's the million-dollar so, question. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 well done, Adrian. Yeah, it's, 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 and these are the beliefs that we have. And I think for our business, uh, you know, and then they're all, you know, we're not here to sort of to talk about other firms. We're here to talk mm. about the experience that we've had here. For us, it was always about having a real mix of different personality types, uh, different skill sets, having a really gender diverse business at all levels. You know, we're incre- I have to say we're incredibly proud of our, our mm. gender stats. I mean, we don't know any other firm that's sort of that, that's, that, that is set up in the way that we are. And I, I think it's about just looking at individual skill sets. We talk about people soaring with their strengths and creating the conditions for them. If someone works on two or three projects and we think they are so amazing at facilitating, let let them build their facilitative skills. Let's use them in in workshops, let's use them in big sort of leadership events where you might have 60 people sitting, you know, sitting in a room. If they've got that, that, that chutzpah, if they've got that energy, if they've got that drive, if they've got that facilitative mindset, uh, let's encourage them to build on that so that they're absolutely the, the best they can possibly be. So that is absolutely central to the culture that we don't want people feeling almost constrained or forced to work, mm. you know, occasionally. I mean, I, I can't, you know, it'd be wrong to say that you get to pick and choose what no. project you're on and, you know, all the time, you know. But it is important for us, if someone fundamentally doesn't want to work for a client because they've got sort of, sort of ideological challenge with it or it's in a location that is so far away from where their family live that it's going to make their life miserable, then we don't just say, well, you have to do it. I'm sorry, you have to do it. We give people the ability to say, look, is it all right if I don't work mm. on this? And we mm. say, that's absolutely mm. fine. Can't say no all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But so it's, again, that culture of openness, that culture mm. of candor, uh, of transparency, and just treating people with respect. And, you know, and it's a good question by Adrian there because he, he would have very similar views mm. and principles um, and, to, and to and us. I would, I would sort of just reiterate two, two things that you've alluded to. I think for me, it's all about creating the conditions for, for success for each individual. So we are a team, but that team is made up of people who have great strengths and great, you know, great opportunity. And that requires us as leaders. I don't just mean founders. I mean partners, principals. It means anybody that's kind of working in a team. We have to spend time getting to know each other. It really, so what goes to the heart of our culture is the relationships that we build individually, that we allow people time to build those relationships. We move people around. We don't create silos because we get to know people and therefore we get to know what their strengths and weaknesses are and we can help them kind of then flourish within that. And that takes time. And obviously as we grow as a business, that's pretty much what I feel I spend most of my time doing. And I'm okay with that. That's right. That's the right thing for me now to be doing in this business because I don't need to be out. It's not about the Sharon show. I need to be there 
creating the conditions for success for all these wonderful people that are part of Q5. And I think you've, you've beaten me to my next question, Sharon, but I'm going to see what else is, what, what else you may have found is, obviously, as you've grown over the years, you've grown you know, from five of you to 200, you've grown across geographies. What challenges have you faced in maintaining the culture you want over that time? And how, how have you responded to that? Yeah, I mean, it's a question that we ask ourselves a lot. And it's a question that our team asks us a lot um, when we have our away days and in our mentor meetings. So, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll kind of give you my view and then, then Ollie can come you'll in. Let me, you'll I'll let, let me you talk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I think that you know, the people that we recruit are really important. We spend a lot of time on our recruitment. It's We as a broader partner group are all heavily involved in recruitment. It's not somebody, it's not our HR, GL, our wonderful HR manager sitting off to one side that's doing that. that. That's us because it comes down to the people. So if we can bring the right people in who have got both the skills, but also the right ethos and the right approach, and that doesn't mean it has to be a consistent approach. We're looking for diversity. We're looking for difference. But if they've got that desire to be, you know, to be hungry, to be curious, to be authentic, they, they will continue to grow the culture in their image as well. They, they will add to it. So I think that's I think that's really important. And then I think there's something about, you know, kind of listening, you know, constantly listening to our teams as we grow. Because it's very easy when you sit at the top of an organisation to think you can see everything and you can't. So finding those ways to hear where the glitches and the, the things that aren't kind of quite working for people is crucial. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's so many, they, 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 yeah, to, so to sort of build, build on that, there, there, there's also the way we do things around here. So for any firm, it's how you stay connected to people. And, you know, nowadays, there's so many different ways. There's WhatsApp, there, there are all sorts of things where you can have instant communication channels with the people around you. But the rhythm of our business is such that, we have a very open way of, uh, of discussing where we're trying to take the business. Every week, we have a, a BD call in all the different countries that we're in, where everyone in the, anyone in the firm mm. is, is, is encouraged to call into this, this conference call number and hear what we're doing in each of the industry sectors. And we talk about where we've got proposals in and what stage the proposal's at. We talk about where we might have a few ideas. We call it food for thought with clients, where there are conversations that have, have piqued some interest amongst some clients. And each of the uh, the, the, the leads of the, the different sectors that we work in talk through those opportunities. And people can ask questions on that call and find out a little bit more about you know whether we think we're going to win it or not. That happens every single week. And every month, whether you're in New York or London or Sydney or Hong Kong, there are, there are team meetings where people get together on a face-to-face -face basis and uh, we spend a couple of hours doing quite fun things. You know, people will be talking about the maybe a project where they've had, uh, you know, it's finished and they've got some lessons learned and some war stories about what worked and what might not have worked. Uh, we'll have a pizza mm. and maybe some beers. And then every six months, we, we do these away mm. days, Sharon alluded to earlier on. You know, we do one in the UK, which everyone flies over for usually. In fact, we're getting a bit too big for that now, to be honest with you, because we've got people, you know, we've got people in Hong Kong and Sydney. And it's a long, long way from people in, for people in Sydney to fly over to the UK for like a two-day off-site. So we, we actually, we, we encourage representatives to come over, but we don't... We don't insist that every single member of our Sydney team has to be here. And we'll, we'll, we'll do something in another, you know, that they will do something in Australia. The, the, the team in New York will go and do a two-day offsite as well. And it might well be that 
Sharon or I or someone from London will go over to that. So every six months we have these grand events. Mm. Every month we have a team event. Every week we have these BD calls. And that is a community. There's a genuine and, sense and, of community. And, and, and something that, that has come, we've developed over the last two years is our Q5er. It's our online community, which, yeah. which holds the whole globe together. And that, that wasn't a, a partner thing. That came out of our, we have an engagement group who are, are a mechanism for listening to the organisation and talking to the organisation. And they said, we need some mechanism, it's kind of like our internal Facebook, you know, how how can we communicate ac- across the world? And it's brilliant. You go in there. I, I really enjoy opening it up and seeing who's been surfing in Sydney on, at the weekend. I, um, I don't enjoy that. <laughs> in the cold, yeah. never-ending winter. And for, and for me, you, you nurture culture. And by, is, that, oh, go on. is that, Sharon, it, just to help my listeners, is that... You mentioned, is it like a Facebook where you each have a profile? Is it a forum yeah, it where is. you... Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's a, a sort of a, a Q5 social media it site. Is. It is, actually. And everyone in the business uh, automatically is a member of it. And it's become, over the course of the last 15 months, probably the... I mean, what's great about it, it's a bit like Instagram. It is fun looking at pictures. If someone happens to be on an oil rig out in North America... They'll take a photo mm. of themselves in their hard hats and their and their boiler suits and say, "Look at you know, look at Claire with her hard hat on." Or if you happen to be uh, working, you know, in the entertainment industry and you in one of the big studios where they they use for TV news shows, people will take a photograph. So this is my day to day by the the weather map, and it's fun. It gives people that sense of connection. what I'm doing, mm. that connection. Mm. You know, mm. here I am in this new world. This is the mm. client I'm dealing with at the moment. It keeps people excited. And it, it, I mean, it's a great, it, as Sharon says, that is not something that was imposed upon the firm no, by, firm by came, the team came up with it. partners. This yeah. was people at other levels in the organisation saying it would be great if we could, you know, this is how we communicate with one another. This is how we share our stories on a personal level. Can we do it within our firm using this mechanism? And they set it up and we mm. were actually, we we became not late adopters. We were pretty early into it, but it was already up and running before, oh, totally. certainly before mm-hmm. you started <laughs> posting photos. Having seen our, like our yes. uh, technological <laughs> skills earlier, yeah, you'll yeah. get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I want to come back to something, Sharon, you were mentioning around recruitment and recruiting the right people. And, and Ollie, you touched on the diversity. So this is, and you're right, I, I, I've been calling him Adrian, but for those who, who may not have listened to him, Adrian Betteridge, managing partner of Beringa, who's been on this uh, show. That was his other question around culture. Is you know, you've been, like you said, exceptionally successful in developing a gender balance at Q5. How have you done that? I assume it's a it's something you've chosen to do, and it's not a coincidence that you've ended up like that. So, uh, how, how have you approached it? Did you know? I, just so, so I just quickly say, I think right from day one, when you have when you start a business, and out of the five founders, you have two mm. very charismatic successful women who who have done great things in big consulting firms and within clients client side right from day one you even in a tiny little business you got these you you have gender diversity and we had that right from day one and actually if you look at most other smaller firms and certainly i've seen you know i've I've, i have i'm a keen listener to your show (laughs) i i have i genuinely have listened to to some of the podcasts you've got and i know a little bit about the provenance of our you know it's we keep ourselves alert to who the other firms are and we're very respectful of them but most of those other firms were set up by by blokes right at the very beginning 
and you're automatically going to create quite a blokey environment. And then if you come, if you're thinking, right, I want to try and uh, appeal to the the other gender, it's it's much more difficult to do so if all your leaders are male and have a particular way of thinking. So right from the very beginning, we had a, you know, we were thinking about being a an equal, vibrant Business from the beginning. And, I, I, you know, yeah, I, and, and for me, I mean, you know, as the woman <laughs> in this conversation, well, well, sorry, I, thought, I thought as the woman in the there, there were there were two of you. Yeah. No, no, but you know, for me, um, kind of gender diversity has not been a big thing through my career. It is it is not something that I have paid a great deal of attention to, and and I may have been lucky that I haven't needed to to worry about that. But I I've always kind of shied away from kind of being held up as a, a, a female role model. Really I, I feel I feel very uncomfortable in that because for me, it's about individuals and, and back to the conditions of success for each individual, whether they're, you know, woman, man, child, you know, black, white. It, we it, don't it, have any children looking at this. I just want to be All the anti-slave regulations that we have, we don't have any children working at Q5. But, but, but I think it's really, you know, for me, what, what I think we've tried to do is approach each individual as the individual and said, what is going to be right for them? Now, that can typically mean when you approach a woman in the workplace that they need quite a lot of flexibility. And we embrace that. You know, I have worked really flexibly throughout my career. And and since, you know, having set up Q5, I've worked really flexibly. I have three children and I'm a very present, you know, mother. And I recognize that in in other parents. So, and I and I would never want them to to compromise on that. And so I think it's again understanding for those individuals what is right and what can we put in place. And we have lots of part-time you know, people, but not all women. We no, have some, some part-time, you, know, got... you know, men in our firm, and I—that's yeah. when I start to get really excited because this is about balance and and the right focus for all, not not just for women. That's when I get kind of a bit antsy and think, well, this, that's not the right conversation. Uh, coming to just directly to what you said, Sarah, how, how do you make that work for yourself? Because again, you know, we talked right back at the start around starting in a recession and some of the reasons you wouldn't start. Another reason some people say is too busy, family, etc. You're, you're managing a consulting firm with a large family. What do you put in place to ensure you get the right balance for you? So I, I have an amazing husband, as I mentioned, you know, who's been a complete partner throughout my career. And so I really, really wouldn't have been able to do Q5 if he hadn't recognised that need in me. And so again, that's quite a personal thing. So, you know, I rely very, very much on him to 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 be to be present for our family when, when I can't be. But I'm also I don't I'm not kind of shy in spending money on putting the right kind of infrastructure in place. I've always had a nanny. I've always had a cleaner. I've always had a housekeeper. And, and that might sound a bit kind of a pompous. And but, a cook <laughs> and a driver. <laughs> but, but actually, you know, I want to focus on the, the things that, you know, are, are important to me, are important to Q5 and important to the kids. And you just kind of have to be sensible about spend some money on it. You know, yeah. I really, you know, I, I, you know, otherwise you do end up killing yourself. And, and, and that's when you burn out and when you kind of have to step away from things. But it is also about important to know, you know, kind of when do you need some time for yourself as well? And, you know, I don't always get the balance right on that. But it's, it's interesting because we, we have people, you know, we have lots of people in the firm now. And 
we will often have conversations or they choose. I mean, we'd never ask these questions ourselves, but there are members of our business, men and women, who will occasionally come along and say, right, you know, for the next year or so, my partner's job Mm. has to take primacy in our relationship because it could be that this person is is up for a major promotion or this person has suddenly got into a role that is going to be all-consuming. And and those are brave conversations to have. And we will always try our best to, to create the conditions here for them to succeed here in a slightly different way. So again, it's about the openness of conversation. I think is is, is critically yes. important. Yeah. But I, I, the other thing that's worth is worth mentioning that uh, and, and talking about lots of very experienced um, female consultants that choose to work on an associate basis. So by that I mean as as contractors that will come and work on a on a project by project basis. That many of them choose to work in that way because it gives them complete freedom to pick and choose what project they want to work on. And they'll be able to look at something as to, you know, where is it located? Does that work for me? Am I going to be able mm. to, to create the right rhythm for, for me and my partner? And will I be able to have some sort of work-life balance? Is it the right rate? You know, do I feel I'm getting my market worth? Is the content of the role that I'm doing this thing that's going to make me sing and happy? And if you get three crosses against that, which is no, you're not, you, don't, you choose not to do it. And I think one of the things we've experienced, certainly in more senior positions on some of our uh, on our client sites where someone might be working with us as, a, as an associate as opposed to as an employee. They have that latitude and that freedom. And there are lots of incredibly successful women who are their own limited companies yes. that choose to work in that way. And they've made that, 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 that is the rhythm that suits them. And I'm sure there are other firms yes. that, that yeah. have experienced that you too. Know, I, you know, in terms of sort of sharing some advice for women as they're in uh, maybe in the earlier stages of their career, I think one piece of advice I would give them is don't be afraid to set boundaries really early because nobody will set those boundaries for you in the workplace. Work will always fill up as much time as you're as you're willing to give it. So you have to kind of establish those boundaries you don't have to be kind of um, strident about them but I don't think I've ever been questioned in my career about why I haven't been somewhere at a certain time because when I'm in something I will give it my all so I, I think it's really important it, you know for, for, for mothers or fathers or who anybody needs balance in their life set those boundaries and, and just work you know you've got to keep working with them communicate them and, and share and that's a great segue actually into the, to the next question I wanted to ask, which we've spoken a lot about people looking to start their own firms. There's an implied seniority in that. For those more junior listening and those junior in your firm, what mistakes do you see junior colleagues making that, that holds them back from progressing in that consulting journey or career path that they're following? Um, another good question. Well, I was just going to say, that's a, 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 a mightily impressive question. Um, I mean, I, I think, um, I don't know that it's, I would describe it as a mistake. I think that the people that come into consulting are hugely ambitious. They're very bright and they want to make progress really, you know, really quickly. They want to kind of move through whatever the hierarchy of their organization is or, or, take on bigger challenges. And I think I would just advise people who are kind of starting in or in the early stages of their career to just really enjoy every project that you're on, to really take everything that you can from it and not kind of try and project too far ahead. And I know that's a really unfair thing to ask because I did it when I was a junior consultant. I wanted to know what's the next thing, when am I going to get promoted? I understand that 
inherent drive and ambition. And that's actually what we're looking for in people. So I don't really want people to kind of dampen that down too much. But I think if it gets in the way, that's when I think it holds people back because they're focused on some future outcome rather than this great opportunity they've got right in front of them to make the most of the project and the people they're working with. So I kind of like be in the moment on your project would probably be one, one bit of advice. Yeah, I think the other thing, I think that's, I think I totally agree with that. I think the other, the other thing is it's not an easy profession. Yes. It really isn't an easy profession. There's so much newness. And you, I mean, Nick, you've been a consultant, you've experienced this. So, you, you know, you work, you might be doing a project in financial services for three months. And then before you know it, you're working with a utility company in Wales. And then it might be that you're working with a newspaper organisation in you know, East London. And you have to go into these often environments that you haven't had much experience of working in before. You're very bright. You're very sharp. You, you know, you you have a, a incredible levels of sort of working out what the issues are and what the different cause of action could be to to to, uh, to remedy them. But you have to be like an hour ahead of the client. Your thinking has mm-hmm. to, and you're sometimes working with people that might be twenty years older than you and have got twenty five years worth of war stories and mm. experiences. That is not an easy job, and uh, so it takes resilience. And it really does take resilience. And I encourage younger members of our of our team to just think about how can you build yes. that resilience? How can you not take it too personally if you have a difficult moment? And, and be, be open with your mentor. We have mentors here in the firm. It's really important that people are, have an outlet where they can go and talk about what's working for them and, you know, how's it going on a client site and just to build resilience in how they work. Because that is, I think, one of the most successful things to be yes. able to, natural things yeah. to, to be able to sort yeah. of generate. But it's, it's not, a, you know, if anyone is listening to this to this uh, podcast that's thinking, well, I'm not sure, you know, I currently work in industry and I'm thinking consulting is for mm. me. You know, they, they have to be prepared to accept ambiguity, to be, you know, to be thrown in the deep end on mm. a regular occasion, uh, regular occurrence, and to be content with that. And at the other the other end of the spectrum, so we've talked about the minimum skills, for instance, about resilience. What for you at Q5 separates your best consultants from the rest of the consultants? What is it that the ones you're looking at as the leaders of your firm tomorrow do that other people in the firm don't? Do you know what? We have a really brilliant team. So so, so this is a fairly anodyne, maybe bland response to your question. I, I, I honestly think that... I am in awe. So I'm using mm. I here. So Sharon's going to answer this question herself. <laughs> I am in awe of the the level of capability and the level of, you know, the, just the, the, the personality and the compassion and the quick-wittedness of people within Q5. I think that our HR colleagues have recruited brilliantly and there aren't that many, you know, most people in our firm, you know, I'd love them to stay in our firm mm. for, forever. But we won't hold on to, we won't hold on no. to everyone. You know, That's over okay. the course of the last year, you've got some amazing people who've moved on to fintechs, they've moved into government departments, they've moved, none of them have moved into other consulting firms. So people that move on tend to go mm. into quite entrepreneurial mm. things or, you know, there's a new thing, a, their own little itch that they've got mm. to scratch. But in the people that we've got within our business, uh, most of these people I see as future leaders of our firm 
And it might be here in London, or it could be opening a new office in another part of the world. So it, it's it's there's a roundedness to the people yeah. that succeed yeah. at Q5. And, and, I, and I think it's back to Ollie's point. It's not a skill set. It's about that ability, that resilience. And um, mindset. mindset. Yeah, resi- resilience and mindset, because th- this job, as we've said, is, is a hard job. And so it's that ability to kind of go, you know, with the, with the good times and the bad times and, and kind of you know, not be buffeted too hard by those. Of course, we all feel it personally. But I think it's th- those that will kind of excel and, and might just excel more quickly will we'll just maybe have a bit more of that resilience in them that's just more natural and, and some others may need to, may take a little longer to build that but I think it's in I think everybody can can build that how do you advise people internally or others you mentor to build you know both that resilience and mindset so we so we've we've started something new in the last year or so actually in terms of well-being resilience and just finding time and space we give people a, uh, a, a cash card, actually, a, a paid up. What's it called? What are those things called? Uh, um, I can't remember. Everyone gets given a, 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 a card with money well-being. on it. It's, well-being a well-being, it's a well-being card. And it's something that we decided to do uh, about 18 months ago to make sure that people take time out of their day-to-day task, and it, whether it's mindfulness or whether they learn to do, you know, play the piano or whether they take on a coach, or whether they decide to go to Paris for the weekend and learn how to do painting. This is a way of just keeping themselves grand, grounded and keeping themselves sort of, I don't know, motivated in ways outside of the normal job. So people's well-being, people's sense of who they are and the, 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 you know, the sort of things that drive and motivate them is an important mm. way of building resilience in people. Mm. So it's not all about the job. It's not all about the exam question that they've been set by their client, mm. but they have other outlets and other ways they've been. Yeah, can and, be and we mentioned the mentor, the mentor structure that we have. That's that is actually really important because that is a safe place for every everybody in the firm has a mentor, and they can. And it's not often. And we try to make sure it's not a kind of a project or somebody a line manager, a project manager, because that's kind of where you can get those intense periods popping up and, and and therefore every six weeks the you know you get time to spend time with your mentor and talk about the issues and that can act for us as also as an early warning system that where we can start to kind of pick some of that stuff up and you know we would always always encourage people to come and talk to us about that you know I think you know we we are you know very open you know we're very very approachable and I think we will do yeah it, it, People don't always know that they're in something like that. So, you know, however much you say, come talk to us. Sometimes people can't because they just don't know don't know what's happening. But but we try and create as much space and connections for people inside Q5 to have those conversations. Uh, actually, one other thing. Actually, when you were talking there, I, I think it's um, I think it's worth stating a couple of things as well, which we don't really talk about in uh, on our website. But right, right from the moment we set our firm up, we're we're very heavily involved in the in the world of uh, of mental well-being and we have we have supported a charity called MQ which uh, one of our advisors uh, founded that business and has has written government reports on mental well-being you have actually acted sorry Sharon here has acted as a as a an advisor yes to to, to the MQ, CEO yes. to the CEO of MQ 
and and also think ahead. Yes. And your husband's written a book. Yes. Uh, on, yes. On mental well-being, based on his own experiences. So it's not something we don't, you know, we don't. What, stand what's the book up. called, Ollie? Just in case my listeners want to look it up. It's called Under Under underneath, the, underneath, underneath the, lemon the Lemon Tree. tree. Yeah, under I've read it. It's really good. It's a really good book. It's a really good read. Uh, I'm not just saying. Brilliant. That. I'll put it's it in the show notes. Book. It's a genuine. It's a genuinely excellent book. And uh, I mean, it's an incredibly personal book, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's an incredibly personal book, but it's an extremely good book. So therefore, and this is not on our website, and it's not in our brochure, and it's not something that, you know, but you've asked the question, but mental well-being is critically important, not just, you know, not just talking about Q5, but everywhere. Mm. And it's something we've always paid a huge amount of you know, time mm. uh, and energy, and we've, mm. we've, we've invested in it, and mm. we practice what we preach. Yes, yes. No, I, I think it's a really important topic. And, you know, I like the idea of giving people an outlet outside of work. And, you know, like you said, the importance of that. So so really, you know, really good advice for people there. I'm, I'm very conscious of time. And I, as I always find with these interviews, we could there's so many other questions, but I, I'm very conscious that it's in late in the evening. For, it's 106 for in the morning, Nick. It's 106 in the morning. <laughs> These antisocial hours. <laughs> well, I am. I, we, so we're talking over Skype, and I, yeah, I can't see any windows, so it could be six. You could be in one of your other offices, Ollie. I, I don't know, but I've just got two, two last questions, and I'm very well. My listeners are very lucky here because we've got two of you, so we get double the answers to these. So. The first one, and we've talked about a number of topics, and actually we, we got a nice segue there, Sharon, with your husband's book, is to find out what book or books it is that you find yourselves recommending or giving to people most. And I'll, I'll leave it there for you to take in whatever direction you want. So, so unfortunately, I'm going to repeat the, the, the book we've just talked about because it is genuinely the book that I give out the most um, underneath Lemon Tree because... And I, and, and I often give it to men because it's a personal story of, of, of mental health. And I think I think men often find it quite hard to talk about that. And so, you know, I yeah, that, that's the one for me. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because um, there, there are so many books out there. <laughs> and when you when you are a founder of a business, you're someone I mean I, I did a degree in English literature so so I spent you know <laughs> I, unlike most so many people in consulting were mechanical engineers when they were at university and they did degrees in economics and mechanical engineering things whereas I did a I for four years I just read books but I read novels and plays and things I didn't read any business books and I'm not a voracious reader uh, certainly not a voracious reader of business books but I was I, I knew you were going to ask doesn't have to be business books Ollie. no no yeah. no and have, actually, give us I your thinking, novels as well I was actually thinking over the course of the last year or so what books have I personally found quite interesting? What books do CEOs read? What books do people say, you know, have you read this? And, you know, from a, from a, there are a couple of business books that actually are, I think, really good. And one is called Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard, which is by Chip and Dan Heath. And that's become a Bible for many of the clients that we work with. A number of CEOs mm. have said, have you read this book? Mm. So I thought, I'd better read it. Mm. So I, I did read it last autumn. And it's a really good book. It's full of anecdotes from different people who've been there on the shop floor uh, uh, trying things at a community level that has, that has that's made change stick and made change happen. That is a really good book. It's been around for about six or seven years. It's not a new thing. Maybe some of your listeners are thinking, well, I've read that ages ago. They've really not moved on from that. Um, uh, there's also a, 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 a quite a poignant book that one of our advisors, best mates, wrote. It's called How to Be Chief Executive of Your Own Life uh, by a chap called Mike Wilson, who died very recently. 
and he was the founder of St. James's Place, you know, the, the, the group mm. of, um, uh, of financial advisors. And he wrote this book and, and actually the, it was published and he got the first, he, he saw it. He died the day he received a copy of it. Uh, wow. And, yeah, and it's a book. We've been given about 150 copies of this and we've given a copy out to quite a few of our team. There's a little sort of summary book of it. It's a great book. Uh, it's quite sort of autobiographical about Mike's life and his own experiences and and where he didn't get the balance right and um, the personal cost that he paid to that and the, the fact that he didn't see enough of his daughter when she was young and it might have had an impact on their, uh, their adult sort of father-daughter relationships. And it's an excellent book. He's a, a supremely successful businessman. But there's a poignancy to the fact that this, his one book, he actually received a copy. But there are a couple of things. I said to Sharon last year, I was on a plane coming back from New York. I was just going to talk about And I film. watched a film, film called The Founder. The Founder. And brilliant. the founder okay. is all brilliant. about McDonald's yeah. and um, and the and uh, uh, Ray Kroc. Yeah, yeah. Ray Kroc. Brilliant. Absolutely, it stars Michael Keaton, mm. and it, I I don't it's, think it was watched by that many people. I'm not sure if it was. A, I don't. It was probably a flop of a film. But if, to anyone that's ever been the founder yes. of a business, it is absolutely yeah. compulsive viewing. It so is. I said to Sean, you've got to watch oh this God, film. Oh my God, it was brilliant. And it's really fat. So anyone who's thinking, yeah. you know, watch that obviously film. Q5 is nothing like a fast food burger company. But there are so many things that were going through mm. the mind of the people at the very beginning of the McDonald's story and Ray Kroc himself, who seemed like a complete sociopath, mm. actually. I'm sure mm. he was a lovely man. But it's a fascinating film. Mm. And anyone that's the founder of the film should do that. And just the one other thing I was going to say, the one other book that I, you know, you have to be slightly idiosyncratic to want to read it. But I, I grew up in South London as a fan of Wimbledon Football Club which was a team back in the 70s, which was an amateur team. And then it got elected into the Football League and then got promoted from the fourth division to the right to the top flight and then won the FA, FA Cup. And about a year or so ago, the players of that era who got promoted all these, you know, year after year after year, wrote a book. It's a poorly written book. They must have literally <laughs> talked about their stories on a dictaphone and some sort of ham-fisted editor somewhere tried to type it up. But it's a real fascinating insight into a team, a rag-to-riches story uh, of people who had been thrown out of youth academies and bigger clubs. These are people who earn a pittance, if you compare it to the modern-day footballer, and actually hearing the story of what they went through, developing that team spirit, that sense of community, that sense of no one likes us, we don't care, we're going to go out and... And, uh, and I, there is something about that. If you're interested in sport... It's a real and, and, and interested in like a business with no brand profile that's trying to compete against the big boys. It's quite an interesting read. I think this is meant to be the quick fire question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's I, I, you know, like if you've listened to, like you said, Ollie, you've listened to some of my other episodes. So I, as I say, in a number of them, I do read a lot. I love getting recommendations from my guests. Started working my way through as, as many as I can on Audible. So these are all great. Um, I can't wait to will. hear. I can't wait, Nick, to hear. How You Find the Crazy Gang by Dave Bassett and Wally Downs. And I'll call you in a few weeks' time to ask you what you think. Well, and Ollie, thank you for the title. The Crazy Gang, I will put in there. As I say, there is a backlog, but give me a, give me a few weeks. Um, give me a call. And I believe AFC Wimbledon have been reincarnated, haven't they? Just a phoenix from the They're doing the it again. They're, they're absolutely doing it again. So back in 2002, you know, the, 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 I mean, the story is a bit of a boring one, really. But the, the Football League, well, the Football League moved Wimbledon Football Club up to Milton, sanctioned a move up to Milton Keynes. 
and the fans of the team uh, weren't prepared to travel for 65 miles to go and watch their local club. So they resurrected the team. They held trials on Wimbledon Common in 2002. And that team has did been promoted. I, I did go to trials. Yeah. <laughs> I, I went to the first ever game. But that team has been promoted from literally, I mean, almost, we're talking about almost Sunday league standard. It wasn't quite as poor as that. The first league they played in was called the Seagrave Haulage Combined Counties League. They're now in League One. They're now in the same league as teams like Wigan Athletic, uh, Charlton Athletic. You know, these are teams that they're now competing against. Whereas the first the first game they ever played in the Seagrave Haulish Combined Counties League, not that long ago, was against teams like Sandhurst, where the the, 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 the fans were sitting on the bales of hay. You know, it's, it's <laughs> extraordinary. It is literally a resurrection. It's a great it's a, story. It's a well, I... I will check it out, Ollie. And, you know, sadly, I've left London now, but if I do find Wimbledon coming down to the southwest, I'll uh, I'll go and watch them as well. I'm, I'm more of a rugby man, but I love a good sporting story, like you say, that sort of rags to riches. Um, so thank you so much for the books. The, the very last question, and again, I, I like that we've got two of you, because usually this is three bits of advice, and I think we'll get six. So you have three people in front of you, and give one bit of advice to each. One person is just starting their career in consulting. One is four to five years in, and I, I say that loosely. So let's say senior consultant to manager, senior manager. And then you've got one who's approaching that partnership point. So my old shop at Beringer, it was director. Some people call it principal, but that, you know, the one below partner. What one piece of advice would you give to each of those people? Stop, stop Sharon. She's itching to answer. <laughs> So I'll start, I'll start with somebody that's at the kind of the partner level or, or kind of looking to get into the kind of partner level. I think that uh, it's really important, um, you know, as you step into that role, you know, here at Q5, we will always be asking you to think about the team, but you're only going to be successful as a partner if you can build and nurture and sustain those teams around you because it isn't all about you. So kind of if you haven't, clocked that you're better as you step into the to the partner the partner level for the early joiner for me I'd go back to something that I talked about earlier which was kind of try and kind of enjoy the projects that you're on don't don't kind of you know strive too hard for those kind of what's my you know my next promotion you know just really spend time learning from those people around you and kind of making the most of the projects. So, so I think, think I already said that earlier. And then a mid-career consultant. That one's, that one's the harder one for me. Well, I, I do know. It's, it's an interesting one because you could almost reverse. So for someone joining, someone starting at the very beginning of their consulting career, um, I look back at some of the things that we, we did back in the, in the early to mid-90s. And we were, you know, we were kind of allocated to industry mm. sectors almost at the age of 22, yeah. 23. And before you knew it, you might have spent five years yes. in financial services working mm. in capital markets and think, well, I have no other mm. experience. So my advice to people starting out, it doesn't matter what consulting company that they're joining is, try and get as many flavors of different yes. industry sectors as you can. Because you are, you know, you're, you're a blank canvas mm. when you start as a consultant and try and experience working in the public sector have a have a yes. have a go in the retail yes. sector. Go and work for an infrastructure company. See which one suits your personality. See what you know. See which one suits your motivational needs. Uh, and funnily enough, if you've been working for a number of years, 
I think you then need to say, what are the what two or three focus? you love mm. best? Where do you find the, the, the passion? What industry matters to you? On a personal level, um, I first started work in the media and entertainment sector when I was about 32, probably 32, 33. I'd never worked. I spent 10 years working. And I suddenly discovered a sector I loved, probably because I'm from a very sort of arty-farty creative background. You know, I've talked about the English literature. But I was it, it suddenly discovered there was an industry sector full of people who loved talking about news, loved talking about current affairs, were passionate about that world, which I didn't get when I worked in financial services and I didn't see in some of the other mm. sectors that I worked in. So for me, I kind of came into the environment you know, 10, 11, 12 years in. So I would say to someone at that stage in their career, start specializing in the ones you love best because you will mm, succeed. You will soar with your you strengths, with as your we've strengths. said throughout. And then yeah. at the partner level, it's it's almost like starting again. It's You, you become a partner. Mm. We are within our own firm, and I'm sure this is the case in all other firms. We have so much respect. If you're 22 and 23 and you're joining our firm, uh, we, we really do want to act as that that avuncular kind compassionate colleague that is helping to mentor yes. you and helping you to, to to flourish when you get into the partner ranks it is much more not aggressive but it's much more you know if you don't agree with something you say I, I totally disagree with you you know it's much more um Hard-edged. It's hard-edged. It's definitely more hard-edged because but it has to be, the success yeah. or failure of the business is down to some of the decisions that you're making. So sometimes you might have a relationship with someone that's 12 years long coming up through the ranks where you've been, you know, you've been on a very emotionally even keel with them. You say, look, brace yourself mm-hmm. because the the world you're about to enter is is a much more passionate one at times. You know, some, you know, it really is certainly in my experience of not only working at Q5, but in other firms, when you get into more senior positions, you can have, you can have mm. some in, extraordinarily expressive mm-hmm. uh, and moments. passionate moments. Mm. And you have to be prepared for that um, and know how to deal with that. Thank you very much. As, as I'd hoped for, much more than three bits of advice that I'm sure my listeners will find very, very useful. So Ollie and Sharon, I'm, like I said, I'm very conscious of time be at 6am, be at 9pm, 9, 9 we'll, we'll leave my listeners guessing to where you are. Um, but I want to say thank you very much for this. If anyone's listened to this and they want to find out more about Q5 or they want to find out more about yourselves or your other co-founders, where would you point them to? Where can they find you? So the website's q5partners.com. So it's it, we'd love to just be q5.com, but it's an impossibility. <laughs> I think there's some Chinese company that owns that. URL. So q5partners.com. And there are whole our profiles, different, our are, all profiles there. are there. There are contact details there. Uh, or I mean, by all means, uh, approach us through LinkedIn as yeah. well. You know, we're all yeah. we're all on that. Fantastic. Well, I'll put links in the show notes to, to your website, your LinkedIn profiles. If anyone wants to reach out there, they can find you there. Uh, and like I say, thank you so much for this and all the best for the rest of your week. Thank, thank you. you very A much, pleasure, Nick. Nick. Lovely. Great thank to speak you. To you. Cheers. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb In Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. 
If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.